Boy Willie tries to fight the ghost. Right. <laughs> there, everyone. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We are very pleased to join you this whatever day of the week you're listening to the podcast. As our our devoted listeners know, it releases on a Monday, and I know lots of people do listen on Mondays, which is encouraging. We we watch the metrics for the podcast, and on Mondays (laughs) we we see the swell of listeners. But we also know many of you follow up after that. So whatever day of the week you're listening, we're pleased to be with you today. Yeah, yeah. Hope your day has gone well. And we are excited to get to jump into this conversation with each other and all of you out there in podcast land about another great play today. That's right. And especially just another great playwright. Now, we have talked of this playwright before, but with this playwright, as with so many, it's worth coming back time and time again. We we have this privilege to sort of sit at the feet of the masters and spend time looking through great dramatic literature. And we, you know, we had that month where we talked about four Arthur Miller plays, got to spend time with that master of playwriting. We've talked about Eugene O'Neill and Tennessee Williams and Pinter and Wendy Wasserstein. And of course, we used to do a Lynn Nottage play at the beginning of every season. So we've got to spend time with a lot of really excellent playwrights. And we're coming back to another one, one of the kings of American theater. In August Wilson, who is our playwright for today, we've done uh, Fences, one of his plays before on the podcast, and today we are jumping into The Piano Lesson. That is right. Fences and The Piano Lesson are his two plays that won the Pulitzer Prize, so we felt it was appropriate to talk about those two, and we're excited to get into this. It's a lesser-known play uh, in in kind of the broad landscape, lots of people know Fences, especially now that uh, Denzel and Viola Davis had done that excellent movie. But that, I think, is the limit to what a lot of people know of August Wilson. Uh, theater people that uh, really are engaged in the literature and the culture, of course, know the broad scope of his plays, the Pittsburgh Cycle, which includes two trains running and seven guitars and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and The Piano Lesson is probably the second best-known play from that cycle behind fences. But it'll be it'll be fun to visit this one, and maybe we'll be giving a lot of our listenership a new play, something they've never read, maybe heard about but never read. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's plenty of great options as well as we were doing the research for the play. There's there's versions of the play on 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 YouTube to be watching. Uh, there's this this play as 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 we'll say in the context. There's been a, a good chunk of productions of these plays, and even and even recently had had a revival. So uh, so there's plenty of ways to to uh, watch or read this play. That's right. But before we get into our conversation, we do want to ask all of our listeners who haven't yet to consider heading on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's patreon.com slash no script podcast. If you haven't been over there, that's where you can become a supporter of the show. This show really only works by the support of our patrons. We love to do it. It's a it's a blessing to get to do. It's a privilege in our lives, but it's not free. And Jackson and I 
thou also not rich. Those two things coinciding <laughs> means that we need your support to make the podcast work. For those of you who are supporters, thank you, thank you, thank you a million times. You're why we get to keep doing this. For those of you who aren't yet, I'd, I'd love for you to consider it. There are a couple of tiers over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. Each tier is a different amount that you would offer monthly to support the show. And the lowest amount is just a dollar a month. So that only comes to $12 a year. That's very affordable. And we really feel like if you're a listener of the podcast, you're getting at least $12 a year of value out of the time that you're spending with us. So we'd love you to consider that. There's other tiers, but whatever tier you decide to join... You become a patron of the show, which means you get access to patron-only posts over on that website. Jackson and I post about other pieces of art we're engaging with. We post uh, upcoming scripts much earlier than any of the other people get to see what scripts are coming up. So there's lots of stuff over there to check out. Uh, We'd love for you to go over there. Most importantly, just to support the work that we're doing here. We put a lot of time into it. There's monetary investments and... We love to do it, but we need your help to make it work. So please, please, please head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Thank you very much to those of you who have. Thank you all so much. I, I, I echo all of Jacob's thanks for your support of the podcast over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. And we'll look forward to seeing you over there in the future. That was like a fast rap battle you just did there. That's the fastest little, I've ever heard fast. either of us say that URL. Gotta get it down so that you can spit it out quickly. <laughs> now, back to the script. All right. <laughs> the script, The Piano Lesson by August Wilson. Jackson's going to give you a little bit of the context of the play before I jump into the synopsis. Um, but I want to mention that I, in, in the copy of the script that I have, is a foreword by by author Toni Morrison. And she gives in the foreword to this script what I found to be just a delightful, um, it's not quite a defense, it's almost like an apologetics for reading scripts. And this is something that Jackson and I try to do on the podcast every couple of episodes or other, we get onto a little bit of a rant about how great it is to read scripts. And All people know that scripts are not the finished product of theater. Theater is only finished when it's live on stage, of course. But there's a lot of value to reading scripts, to experiencing them as literature, to experiencing them on the page, to the imagination of creating the space. That's one of the things that Toni Morrison talks about in her foreword, is how great it is to get just the small details that a playwright offers, because the production team does a lot of the imagining of the world of a show. And a playwright only gives you little bits of detail. But as a reader, those little bits of detail bloom in your mind into these colorful worlds. And Morrison says some really beautiful things about why that's valuable for a reader. I'm not going to read it at all here. I'm going to encourage you all to check it out. Um, What we will do is I'll put up on our uh, social media what copy of the script I have so that you can, if you are interested, uh, check out that copy of the script. I think it is on Amazon, uh, like ebook. Um, otherwise, you can just order a copy of the script from Amazon, a paper copy. But read that forward by Toni Morrison if that's something you're interested in. It was it was just really moving to me because this whole podcast is about reading scripts. 
Yeah, I agree. I I, I have the same edition, and I, I read that section. I was like, oh, wow. She just put that way better than I could ever put <laughs> well, that. <laughs> it's, it's not surprising, right? That Toni Morrison is much more articulate than us. That is like her career in life. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree. That forward is well worth your time to, to read and also has some nice good things to say about the play. I'd probably recommend reading it after you've read the play if you read the whole thing because she definitely like drives into some of the big themes Major of the play. Spoilers <laughs> Major spoilers, too. Major spoilers. <laughs> All right, so let's do the context of this play just a little bit. As Jacob already mentioned, uh, the piano lesson is a part of the Pittsburgh cycle, or some sometimes it's called the Century Cycle by August Wilson, which is 10 plays, nine of which are set in the Pittsburgh Hills district of Pittsburgh. The piano lesson is the fourth play in that cycle, and... Uh, it's had, it was first produced in 1987. It's had a bit of a, a long history of production ever since then. Um, that first original ca cast included Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, amongst the names on that cast, he played Boy Willie in that production. And uh, it was, uh, that production was uh, produced at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. Um, the play went on to uh, Yale Repertory Theater, uh, or sorry, I'm, uh, I'm going to correct myself. It was produced by the at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, but then it played that first production at the Yale Repertory Theater, where it continued to play for the next two years, and then it went on to its third production in 1990, which was the year that the play won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, the uh, film adaptation for this play was in 1995. It uh, aired on CBS, and uh, there was a, so yeah. If you've seen the the film adaptation of it, it num won a number of awards. The play itself, the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Play, of course, the Pulitzer P Prize in 1990, and a New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best Play, as well as the Peabody Award. Um, the uh, most recent production is the uh, 200, or at least the one uh, 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 of the off-Broadway productions. There's been plenty of regional productions as well, but the 2013 off-Broadway production uh, aired at, um, or I'm sorry, aired in uh, 2013, uh, April 3rd of 2013, um, and won an Obie Award for that production as well. So this is a play that continues to be done. It's done in regional theaters occasionally as well uh, around and uh, continues to be a play that is accessible to do, um, with with the exception of one very definitive prop. It's it's uh, a, a a play that's done in in a living room and a kitchen, so with a staircase. So it's a, a very producible play and uh, one that what that folks are able to do quite well. And so, you know, it, it's not hard to guess what the really important prop is. The play is called <laughs> The Piano Lesson, and at the core of the story is a piano. The, the play revolves around a family that has, uh, many of the family has moved north from Mississippi to Pittsburgh. Um, this is play set in the 30s in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. So as August Wilson tracks through the 20th century in that particular district in Pittsburgh, this is the play that's set in the 30s. And it, this is a family of former slaves. Um, not that all of them were grew up being slaves, but in their ancestry, very close, uh, is slaves. And that influences the play quite a bit. The, the central tension of the play is between 
uh, a brother and sister. The sister is Bernice. The brother is Boy Willie. Boy Willie arrives in Pittsburgh, traveling straight from Mississippi to to his sister's home. She lives with their uncle or great uncle. I'm a little bit unclear at how you know what at what point all the family lines up, but um, their uncle Doker and the the so Doker and. Uh, Bernice, they live together in this house in Pittsburgh, and in this house is an old piano. Boy Willie has traveled north from Mississippi with uh, Lyman, and they've got a truck full of watermelons that they're going to sell here in in Pittsburgh. And we learn that the reason that they're doing this, first of all, Limon needed to leave Mississippi for his own reasons, but Boy Willie is there to sell watermelons to collect money, and then also he would like to sell this old... uh, piano that belongs to this family and has for generations to help pay for land that he's going to purchase in Mississippi. The Sutter is the name of the man that owned the land, and Sutter's family used to own the ancestors of Bernice and Boy Willie. He Sutter was a white man, and his family owned the slaves that, uh, you know, that Boy Willie and Bernice are descended from. And now that Sutter has died, that occurs in the previous, before the play, now that Sutter has died, the land is for sale, and Boy Willie is out to purchase the land that his family worked as slaves for generations. That's an incredible setup for a play. I mean, what a powerful setup for a play. Now, to get the money, he needs to sell this piano, and Bernice is dead set against selling the piano. The thing about the piano is that carved into it in these artistic, beautiful wood carving patterns are kind of the story of their slave ancestors carved into these beautiful images on the piano. And the piano was stolen from the from the Sutter family uh, who had the who owned the piano and, and paid the uh, a different slave owner for his slave to carve these images into the piano. Um, and there's there's a lovely little monologue in there about how everything that a, a slave at the time would have produced with the work of his hands or her hands uh, belonged to the white man by just the law of the time and how that that wasn't right. And so the this family steals the piano, again, way back, a couple of generations back, steals the piano. They feel it's theirs. And then because uh, it would have been Bernice and Boy Willie's father stole the piano back, he was murdered. And because of all of that, Bernice doesn't want to get rid of the piano. She feels like it was paid for in blood. That's an image she uses a lot. And so that's the central tension of the play. Boy Willie has driven all the way from Mississippi to sell watermelons as sort of a side gig. Mostly he's there to get Bernice to sell this piano, which she is dead set against selling. Lots of other characters revolve around that. There's several side plots. Um, Bernice is being uh, courted by a young reverend who also moved north from Mississippi named Avery. Uh, Whining Boy is, uh, he's a sort of a failed musician who is the brother of Doker, and he's around. He's got a little bit of a subplot. Lamon and Boy Willie are both also out to sort of snag some girls while they're up north, and they have a little bit of plot that revolves around that. But 
all of that is really beside the central issue of the family piano and what's going to happen with it. There's also a ghost in there we this go. play. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I didn't want to give that away too early. I wanted you to hear the rest of the plot before I reveal that there's a ghost. Uh, the ghost is Sutter, the, the white man that died, whose family owned Bernice and Boy Willie's family. And Sutter's ghost appears a number of times throughout the play. I think it's pretty important that he's not a staged character. August Wilson was kind of a well-known advocate for the black community having their own theater separate from white people. And so he didn't, by and large, write white people into any of the characters of his plays. And so Sutter is not a character. He's a presence, a ghostly presence. And in the climactic moment of the play, Boy Willie is trying to basically just take the piano by force from the house. He hasn't been able to convince and so he's just decided to do it. And Sutter's ghost intervenes, and Boy Willie wrestles with Sutter's ghost, and Bernice is able to sort of calm the the, the spiritual and ghostly uh, explosion of energy in the room by playing this family piano that's been bought and paid for with the blood of slaves. Uh, something she hasn't done since her husband died. Uh, how her husband died is also sort of a side plot in the play that I'm sure we'll talk about. But I think that covers the major bases of what occurs in the action of the play. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 again a, a very deep play with a lot of uh, crossing crossing plot lines. But I agree that the central like central conflict of the play and it's it's a conflict that is dealt with openly by uh, Bernice and Boy Willie throughout the play is which one of these two will get their way with the piano um and and both of them I, I think it's a really it's a really uh good seems such a shallow way to say it but a really good struggle because both of them have really good and identifiable goals right that they want that they want this piano to do um uh, Boy Willie is wanting it for like a third of the amount of money that he needs to buy the land that he wants to live on so that he can have his own land, so that he can farm, so that he can have his own autonomy and work the land that his family has worked for generations. While Bernice is focused on the the immense uh, kind of legacy of of uh, sentimental value around the piano. Yeah, and, at one and point what it she means... says something like, something so powerful. She says, I mean, August Wilson writes it better than I'm going to say it, summarize it. But she says something like, you know, our dad didn't steal the piano that our family had poured blood, sweat, and tears into just for us to give it back. Right. Yeah, exactly. So so she has this, this immense um, kind of family ties worth to the piano. It means something. Even though she seems to be somewhat hesitant to play it, she still has an enormous worth around it and, and what it means to her family. And there is this... I mean, at the core of this play is this intense struggle between two human beings to achieve separate and um, utterly unreconcilable goals, right? I mean, August Wilson, as the brilliant playwright that he is, has created a play in which two people come head to head and only one of them can win. And that in itself is fantastic theater, all the brilliant lyricism and metaphor and imagery of August Wilson's writing aside, just at the core, this intense struggle between two people who have very high stakes in what they're doing. I mean, Boy Willie especially speaks so eloquently about 
the the intense importance of this moment in his life. The moment where he can really, in his mind, undo or reconcile generations of slavery by purchasing the land that his family was forced to work with no benefit to them. And he can now become the landowner. And at one point he says, once you own land, you can talk to any white person about the th- about regular stuff, about the weather and the price of cotton and farming. You become, in his mind, some something more of an equal once you own that land. And it's it's just I, I said this when I was doing the context or the the synopsis, but it's I, I just feel so powerfully how incredible that narrative is. This young man struggling to purchase the land his family worked as slaves. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And he and he just keeps you get the sense from both him and Lyman that they've been kind of pushing at at the world wherever they can to try to. Uh, make make a life for themselves in some way and they've they've been partners at it for a while it sounds like like maybe at least three years prior they were working together on a project that we know and there's there's some uh history of them and and you get the sense that they've been pushing at different places and it seems like uh, for for boy willie that finally the moment has come the stars have all aligned uh, sutter miraculously falls down a well um, and dies, <laughs> leaving the land to his brother and not his kids, so that he has the chance to buy it, and he just needs this last like third of the investment to get it done. So it, it makes it. I, I agree. His his motivation is so based in the what the piano could be doing for for him that uh, he doesn't see the sentimental argument of Bernice at all. He even goes so far as to say that if Bernice were like. Uh, teaching lessons on the piano or using the piano for something or building her life off of the piano that he he wouldn't even try this that he'd have to take that into the equation and uh, and and take take that into account but um, since she's not since it's just sitting there mostly unused except for uh, Maretha Bernice's daughter playing it occasionally it's like we, we should be using this we should be using this to build our lives and make our lives better Right. And the contrasting argument from Bernice, as, as you already sort of summarized, is, is also an incredibly moving argument about the piano as an object of the family's legacy, as proof positive that they put blood, sweat and tears into their lives, that they've gone and changed their lives. Right? I mean, they stole the piano from Sutter's house and it cost uh, Bernice and boy Willie's father his life. And mm-hmm. so you have at the core of this play this head-to-head struggle between two humans, divergent goals, only one can win, incredible drama. And lots of people who've written about the play, including Tony Morrison in this forward, lots of reviewers, lots of thinkers about August Wilson's legacy have commented on that. The piano lesson, maybe even a little bit more than Fences, does an incredible job at putting humans in divergent paths and seeing who's going to win. But there's also this whole part of the plot that's about ghosts. I've already mentioned (laughs) about Sutter's ghost investing in the house. But the part of the story I didn't mention is this ghosts of the yellow dog feature of the script. And you just brought it up that Sutter, in your words, miraculously has fallen down a well prior to the action of the play. And that's what's killed him. What neither of us have mentioned before now is that Sutter is only the most recent victim in a long line 
of in this count in this place in Mississippi where the family is all from, there's been a, a series of white men who've fallen down wells to their deaths. And yeah. the what has come up and what the belief is is that it is the the ghosts of the yellow dog rail line is is what people are saying. And and that sounds like, you know, Sounds like some sort of myth that, like, the community is has told of the Yellow Dog Rail Line. It, be, it becomes clear that, like, Doker and um, Whining Boy and then Boy Charles, who is uh, Boy Willie and Bernice's father. So those three brothers all worked on the railroad and and worked to build the railroad. So that's that's another whole sub theme of this is kind of this this story of them building the travel across across the country. Yeah, the and, yellow, and Doker the, still works on the railroad. He's a cook now. And so there's a whole section of the play that he's gone for because he's on a rail line riding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so the 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 yellow dog is the train that they built that goes through their town in Mississippi. Um, and the ghosts of the yellow dog are this, this, um, it's, it's actually, if I, if I understand the myth right, and it's beautiful because the myth is kind of slowly, um, uh, filled out. They start talking about the ghost of the yellow dog in the first act of the play, and you don't find out more information or the story behind it really to like the second or third, maybe fourth act of the play. Um, but I, I believe what it is, is, uh, Boy Charles, who is uh, Bernice's and Boy Willie's father, stole the piano and tried to get away with it. And they, he got on the train and uh, was trying trying to run away. And a posse came and burned down the trail, the the the, the rail car that he was in. Um, he had three people. They call them hobos in the play that were in the train with him. And this posse of white men, maybe it was the sheriff, maybe it was Sutter and a gang of his friends, nobody really knows. But uh, this gang of white folks burned them alive in the rail car. Yeah. And then, slowly, each of those white folks start falling down wells. Um, and, and the legend begins to, to build in the community that, um, these are the ghosts of the yellow dog. The, the, these, these, uh, folks who died in the, uh, in the burning of the car. And, uh, to the point that, uh, even, uh, whining boy says that he went and talked to them at a crossroads of the train of the rail track. So it's kind of this, this like really spiritual part of the play. These, these spirits are, are, are kind of coming after those who who killed them and um so and 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 that's it's just like this it's this almost implausible part of the play that you're that you're listening to this kind of ghost story but then Sutter starts messing with the home and that they're in and you have to kind of w- throw some credence at it you have to give that story some weight because you 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 see the effects of this ghost kind of haunting the piano that he he spent so much of his life uh, 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 protecting and owning. Yeah, so there's these two um, parallel ghost stories that are going on amidst this incredible human drama. There is the ghost that is haunting the house that the play is taking place in. That's Sutter's ghost, the ghost of a white man whose family owned slaves who potentially was involved in the brutal burning to death of several men in their community. That's Sutter's ghost story. Then there is a parallel ghost story of the ghosts of the yellow dogs, these victims who are taking a ghost vigilante revenge on their murderers by pushing them into wells. 
Both the stories start off as myths, right? It's right away like, oh, Sutter died. It was the ghost of the yellow dog. And uh, it le- only later on in the course of the play is that myth bolstered when we, the audience, start to hear that, oh, it wasn't just like Sutter died in an accident and people think it was the ghost of the yellow dog. Sutter is the only the most recent victim in a long line of well murders that might yeah. be the ghost of the yellow dog. We hear something that's, you know, very unexplainable. Uh, are, is it true that, like, they say it's between 9 and 12 men have fallen yeah. into wells and died. Is that an accident? Is there a human vigilante that's still alive pushing people into wells? Is it a ghost? We don't know, but we are presented with a story that's a little bit odd, a little bit unexplainable. Mm-hmm. Same thing, really, with Sutter's ghost. Bernice sees, we claim, off stage Sutter's ghost up in the upstairs hallway. We don't see that. We just hear her tell it. Uh, several of the characters don't believe her. But then later on in the play, we, the audience, start to see unexplainable ghost phenomena in the house as well. And we begin to discover that other characters uh, see the ghost. Maretha sees the ghost when she goes upstairs. We learn that Doker had seen the ghost weeks before the events of the play. Um, uh, he had seen the uh, the ghost playing at the piano. So, so yeah. And and then we see uh, the biggest. I think the biggest physical evidence that we see of the ghost is we know that uh, Boy Willie and Lyman can lift the piano. There's a scene early on in the play where they're just testing the weight of trying to move the piano out of there, and they get it up off the ground and are able to move it. And then there's a scene where they are essentially alone in the house. Maybe Doker is there. I can't quite remember at this exact moment, but there, Bernice is not there, so the, the biggest contender to keeping the piano there is not present. And they go to try to lift the piano and move it out so that uh, Boy Willie can sell it to, to a, uh, a piano salesman. Um, <laughs> another side <laughs> character that floats through the Off the stage character, yeah. Just this guy <laughs> yeah. that's got all kinds of money to buy the piano. Right. A little bit day is not going to... Yeah, yeah. But they, they, they try to lift the piano and it's stuck to the ground. And the stage directions call for however you've uh, started to signify that the presence of Sutter is around for the presence of Sutter to be heard by the audience but not known by the characters. So so we, we see the physical effects of something, you know, something ghostly hold, holding the piano down. And, uh, and so, we, yeah, we, we, we experience the ghost story as well. And here's one of the things that I find so interesting about the way Wilson has constructed the human characters to interact with the ghost stories. Boy Willie is a um, dedicated disbeliever of the Sutter ghost thing. Up till the final moment where he actually wrestles with the ghost, he does not believe Sutter's ghost is in this house. He believes people are absolutely imagining it. Bernice imagines it or is lying, he says. Uh, when Whining Boy says that he's seen the ghost, he thinks that Whining Boy's just drunk. Maretha's just a little girl. He has all explanations for uh, people who've seen the ghost and how it, it's not really happening. Okay. Then on the other side, Bernice believes very strongly in Sutter's ghost. She's seen him, but she disbelieves the ghost of the yellow dog story. 
It's so <laughs> fascinating to me that both these characters, uh, Boy Willie believes the ghost of the Yellow Dog story, doesn't believe Sutter's ghost. Bernice does believe Sutter's ghost, but doesn't believe the ghost of the Yellow Dog story. It's so fascinating to me that both of these characters who believe in some part of supernatural ghost involvement in the story also disbelieve the other parallel ghost story. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think uh, I, I'm really drawn to the the uh, the story element that is Bernice not believing the the ghost of the yellow dog story because I think she like is throwing quite a lot of uh, blame at Boy Willie and 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 uh, anger at Boy Willie for her perceived well her her it's not even perceived the role he played in the death of her husband. And we kind of uh, this is again another another deep river of plot that is running in this play is that Boy Willie Lyman and um, Bernice's husband, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, uh, <laughs> um, did a did a a job together about uh, stealing wood. Essentially, um, Boy Willie and Lyman were were logging a bit of land down in Mississippi, and they were setting aside wood for them to kind of scrape a little bit off the top and uh, try to sell on their own. And they all went down to to kind of get that wood that they had hidden away. And uh, her husband, Bernice's husband, ended up dying uh, because, well, there, there's a variety of, of, of stories about why. Really, we get Boy Willie's account of um, uh, her husband brought a gun with him. And so a lot of shooting happened and he died as a result of that. So Bernice is carrying quite a bit of uh, blame towards Boy Willie and seems kind of right off the bat to not be trustworthy of or to think he's not trustworthy to the point that she accuses him of stealing, stealing the truck that he came on, stealing the watermelons that he brought. And also, uh, uh, of course, uh, the, the death of her husband. Yeah. And that might be one of the the central theme. It's not quite a theme. What I'm trying to say is there's there's this idea in the play of of legitimacy. And that's where I was kind of going with the ghost story and you brought in the truck too. And then there's also the legitimacy of the death of Bernice's uh, previous husband. The characters in this play are constantly negotiating the trustworthiness of the people around them, the legitimacy of the people around them. Jackson just mentioned right away when Boy Willie and Lyman come into the home, Bernice and even Doker are on them about whether or not this truck was legitimately gotten or stolen. And the question of was Sutter legitimately killed by the yellow ghosts by or the ghost of the yellow dogs? Was it just an accident or was he murdered? Bernice suggests by boy Willie to get his right. land. And there's there's a, many more examples of that. But the piano, I think, becomes a really interesting central sticking point for that because of course the piano's legitimacy is at the core of this play it's a stolen piano yeah <laughs> i mean boy <laughs> willie and bernice's father stole it and so at face value it's illegitimately gotten no matter you know at, at, just as it is but then of course there's this layer of how the piano was produced by the slave labor of their ancestors and actually was purchased by selling their ancestors to have in a trade actually for the piano so the the legitimacy of whether the piano belongs to them or really belongs to the white slave owner 
that becomes, you know, one of the things that the piano represents, I think, is this central question of legitimacy. Now, now the play takes the view correctly, obviously, that the piano belongs to Bernice and Boy Willie, that it was produced by the slave labor of their ancestors, it was bought and paid for in the blood of their people. And that's, of course, the right perspective. No, no argument there. But the question does exist because the piano was stolen. Yeah. Yeah, so they they are kind of uh, part part of the the tension is the answering of that question, and I agree it comes down on the on the side of 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 it's it's theirs, and they have they they have the ownership over it. But but that and, that, and it comes that, down to it because of Sutter's ghost, right? I mean, it, it's not like right. the characters are debating this issue, but Sutter's ghost is there, the right. the, the the representative of this white family who you know, in their perspective, I suppose, paid for the piano, paid for the carvings, of course, with slave labor and slave money and slave bodies. So that's horrifying. But that that would be the perspective of Sutter and his family. And so as a ghost, he represents this idea that he still has some claim of ownership to the piano. And he's cast out <laughs> by Bernice singing a song to her mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers to help her cast him out of the house. So in that moment, there is another victory for their family over this, like, undead thing that is still holding over the piano. Incredible. There, there's yeah. a quote from a review at the beginning of this copy of the script that mentions something about how there are moments of the play that are just breathtaking. And that moment is just, it just steals the the very breath out of your mouth. I mean, lots of people have said that this play is, despite the fact that it won a Pulitzer Prize, an example of August Wilson being a little bit free with his deus machina, right? (laughs) Instead of having the two characters negotiate and somebody's going to win, if you heard that slapping sound, I'm slapping my fists together. Somebody's going to win. Instead of that... (laughs) A ghost comes in <laughs> and wrestles one of the characters into submission. And, and that has been said about the play. But what I think that that perspective is missing is that Bernice is ultimately the victor with this incredible thank you, helping, calling on her her family to assist her in the fight against this this ghost that is the descendant of white slave owners. I mean, just that is powerful beyond words yeah absolutely and i think it's a way to to uh have the end come about like these characters are so fixed on their on their goals no matter what and and it might be a little bit deus machina but also both fighting a ghost (laughs) and defeating it together would be just about the only way for some sort of amicability to come about between these characters. Bernice has a gun for the last part of the play. She has a gun and is pretty much ready to shoot Boy Willie if he takes the piano out of there. The relationship has fallen apart <laughs> by the end well, of the and, play. And it's, I, what I think I'm, my perspective is, is that despite the criticism of the moment where a supernatural force comes in and ends the conflict, it's almost classically deus machina. <laughs> Despite that criticism, I don't think that's the case 
because yeah. Bernice takes action that represents her point of view and ultimately triumphs over Boy Willie and his point of view. She uses the piano and the legacy, the family legacy of ownership and blood in the piano becomes the central way that that the, the plot's end is achieved. An action that she, a human being, takes, which bolsters the dramatic conflict that's existed throughout the entirety of the play. Boy Willie tries to fight the ghost. Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> to some effect, but not a winning effect. <laughs> no, he's like being choked to death. <laughs> right. <laughs> And Avery, yeah. the preacher, who who is the the person who's you know courting uh, Bernice through the entirety of the play, he's there to try to like perform a. Uh, it's not like a Catholic exorcism. It's like uh, it's like a ble- house a blessing, house blessing to remove the ghost, which I would call an exorcism. But that word's not used. But that's right, what right. he's there to try to do. He's ultimately defeated by the ghost as well. It's mm-hmm. only Bernice and. An example of the perspective that she has held and argued for, the goal that she has tried to achieve through the entirety of the play, is achieved in that moment. Yeah, and and it's and it's of some sacrifice to her because we know that she has has not wanted to play the piano for for a long time. We know that there's a, like a, a lot of as much as she uh, values the legacy of her family that is in the piano, there's a lot of kind of painful baggage around it as well. We know she hasn't touched the piano since her mother died. She closed it up and she uh, she has Maretha play it so that she can be learning music so she can hopefully have a have a, a better leg up in in her schooling, but uh she she hasn't touched it. So that moment is is a sacrifice for her as well as she says I'm going to lay aside uh, my own pain for a moment and and kind of and and re-engage with this painful uh family legacy that that she that she has sitting in her house and it answers that question of legitimacy and ownership right the piano answers that question for the piano and I think an open question that still exists at the end of the play is what's going to happen to legi- to the legitimacy and the ownership of the land the land that Bernice and Boy Willie's family has worked for generations as slaves, and now Boy Willie is out to purchase, which, again, just to say again, how incredible is that Is that concept right. for a story? Incredible. Um, and so what's going to happen there now that Boy Willie's not going to have the piano sold? That, I think, is a very open question at the end of the play. I agree. Yeah, I mean, you 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 do have the 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 knowledge that that Boy Willie knows that the Sutter brother who is selling the land is upselling him. So there is some hope that maybe he'd be able to go back and try to get a a more fair price for it. However unlikely that would be in that scenario. But um, but yeah, it is it is a big um big kind of opening because he he leaves as as we've said he's he leaves and kind of does this quip of you better all keep playing that piano or else I and Sutter will be back for it. Um, but, very, uh, <laughs> very ominous end. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like one of the last line or two of the play. It's like, yeah. play that piano. <laughs> this ghost is coming back. <laughs> and I am too. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think that is, it, it is an open, open question uh, for the end of the play. I also 
we we kind of uh, one thing before we move on past the ghost moment, which we should probably do. Um, <laughs> the uh, the I also um, we, we we moved past uh, Boy Willie physically fighting the ghost. Um, and and I think I think there is I read something really interesting about that. Just it was like a one liner. I forget where I read in in preparation for it. But the concept he's been fighting so long against so many bad odds that the concept of physically fighting a ghost does not affect him at all. Yeah, like, and it's a, it's a delightful payoff from the very beginning of the play when Bernice first sees Sutter's ghost in the upstairs hallway. She comes down claiming she's seen a ghost. Several people don't believe her. Several people do. And Boy Willie says something to the effect of, man, I wish Sutter's ghost would be here so I could give yeah. him a whooping. Absolutely. <laughs> what yeah. a wonderful payoff at the end of the play when he has that opportunity. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Another really interesting feature of this play is all of the music. Of course, a play called The Piano Lesson, in which an incredibly elegant decorated piano, old piano, is the centerpiece prop. In fact, I, I would imagine this has been done before, so I'm not like some, I'm, I'm not imagining something out of the blue, but I would imagine you could do the play with only the piano. And that'd be a fascinating production. Imagine the rest of the set, but you can't do the play without the piano piano centerpiece of the play in that kind of a play it would have been artistically uh immoral for august wilson (laughs) not to have included barrels of music and there is music throughout the entirety of the play and just reading it, you don't get to hear the music, but you do get that delightful Toni Morrison's concept of imagining um, when you read a play and, and how valuable that is. So you get to imagine the music as a reader. Seeing it, you get to hear the music. I watched a production online to hear some of what was going on, and it, it's just an incredible piece of the storytelling. Yeah, there's 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 whole scenes that kind of break out into song, and some some of it is with the piano, and others of it kind of you you feel the reminiscence of of like railroad working songs that come out. There's a number of songs and that have that. prison songs. Yeah, and prison songs and, and just kind of this this chorus that eventually builds in a number of the scenes of different characters uh, singing songs together. You get the sense that it's, that's, that it's uh, kind of a, um, a through line of this family is that they sing together in one way or another. And and it helps to carry you along from piece to piece because the music is – it tells you some about the characters. Like I mentioned prison songs and there is a moment where the, the men on stage, all of whom have at one time or another been imprisoned in parchment, which is an infamous real-life prison in Mississippi that has a whole legacy of horrifying racism. Um, and, and and they've all been in prison there at one point or another, and they're singing this song that they learned in prison. And in a play that's so much about legacy and what you carry with you from prior parts of your lives and your ancestors' lives, the way that they've carried this music into the now is incredible. And of course, we've mentioned over and over again that the, the climactic battle of the play between Bernice and Boy Willie and Sutter's ghost is one through music. Right. Yeah, the the the, the kind of the and and not just music, but music that is about their family. Music that is that 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 draws in the help of the family and the 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 uh yeah, the the shared history that this family of of music players and singers have together. 
there are two monologues in this play that when I initially read the play many years ago, I remembered liking. And as I came back to the play in preparation for the podcast, I, I was sort of looking for where these monologues occurred. And I found both of them to be better than I remembered and more incredibly um, uh, more poignant for our time now than I remembered them being. There's a monologue early in the play and late in the play by different characters. Um, I want to read you the monologue, the second of the two monologues that I want to talk about. It's it's a monologue from Bernice, and this is a scene in which Avery, who's been courting her, has come to, he's, he's gotten a loan to build the church that he's been after, and so he's finally come to say, look, I'm going to be a pastor of a church. In order for me to do that, I really, you know, I need to be a married man. It's time to, to make this decision. He's been asking a bunch, apparently, and she's been turning him away. She's adamant that it's not going to happen right now. That that's the conflict of the scene. And this is a monologue by, that Bernice says. Listen to just how incredibly poignant this monologue is. Imagine it in the late 80s and early 90s, how incredible this monologue is and how relevant it is to the now. Bernice says, You trying to tell me a woman can't be nothing without a man, but you all right, huh? You can just walk out of here without me, without a woman, and still be a man? That's all right. Ain't nobody going to ask you, Avery, who you got to love you. That's all right for you. But every gonna be, everybody going to be worried about Bernice. How Bernice going to take care of herself? How's she going to raise that child without a man? Wonder what she's going to do with herself. How's she going to live like that? Everybody got all kinds of questions for Bernice. Everybody telling me I can't be a woman unless I got a man. Well, you tell me, Avery, you know. How much woman am I? Now, I'm a white man, obviously, and that's a monologue for a black woman, so I'm not trying to give it any kind of a, a strong performance. I'm just reading it so you can hear it. But yeah. what a monologue! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that that scene, uh, it, it brings to mind something else I, I was doing for research and, and August Wilson trying to write this play with a really strong female character in it. Um, he, he put a lot of energy into Bernice as a character, and, and he wound up making the play a little bit more about legacy as he went. But this this scene between Avery and Bernice, and this monologue especially, I agree, carries so much of the weight of the power of Bernice's character and and what she's up against in the world, uh, in this world that, that has kind of been, I think she would say, she blames uh, Boy Willie for it a little bit. Um, this world that's brought about as the result of all these, these people. Uh, there's another one where she's saying killing and stealing and killing and stealing. Like she's stuck in this world um, that, that's, 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 that, that she's trying to raise her child in and just live in. And this, this idea that August Wilson, a man, has managed to put so eloquently that in, a, in our society even now, but in this society then too, that uh, like a woman isn't complete without a husband, but a man can be complete without a wife. And the inequity of that, the unfairness, the, the not rightness of that core idea, that's such a poignant way to put that particular perspective, the right one. And to, and it just is so relevant even now, mm -hmm. more than 30 years later. 
Yeah, it's both amazing and sad. Um, right, that is, yeah. that quite sad, quite sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that it, that it had. I mean, there's there's like three uh, times of relevance: the time of the play that is it is written, it is relevant. Uh, the time that the play itself is taking place in the 30s or late late 30s area, it's relevant. And of course, it is it is still a present reality today. So this this play is a goldmine for monologues of of all lengths too. Like if you're if you're looking for like two or three page monologues, this play is those monologues if you're a black like, actor i mean if you're a black actor yes right. um and uh and and then there's also ones that are like these these like short paragraphs that have these these the power powerhouses in them for you to act around and then the the other monologue that i wanted to bring up is probably in a modern day production one of the centerpiece monologues of the play because of how sharp the commentary is for the world right now. It is a monologue from early in the play. Uh, it's, a, it's a monologue that Whining Boy has. He's talking with Boy Willie about, uh, about racism, about the way that a black man and is treated differently than a white man. Boy Willie's perspective is sort of that he might be able to gain some equality uh, through land ownership. Um, but some of the other characters in the play are saying to him, down south in Mississippi, you're never going to get that. And um, the the monologue is – it's about – I'm, I'm going to try to summarize it rather than read it, I think. What Winding Boy says – he gives this example of a berry bush. He says, imagine that you find a berry bush and you're a black man and you pick some berries and eat them. A white man comes along and says, those berries are on my land. Arrest this this black person for stealing berries just to make an example for all the other black people. And then imagine that you bought that land from the white person. The white person is going to have the ability to find a way to say, you can have the land, but the berry bush is still going to be mine. And Whining Boy says he's, he has the ability to fix the law so that he can get what he wants. And this is the end of the monologue. Now, that's the difference between the colored man and the white man. The colored man can't fix nothing with the law. Wow, is that just an incredible commentary on the on white privilege, on yeah. the way that our legal systems are set up to benefit white people over people of color, and how sad again that this is still so relevant. But it it is so sharply poignant to the world we live in right now. Yeah, absolutely. It speaks right into systemic racism and and the ongoing struggle of people of color and their and their oh, trying to overcome the the way that that white privilege has so much access to law and so much access to ways to rewrite law and rewrite history to to benefit the 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 white folks and that so yeah I, I agree that this play this play continues to like have so many poignant themes that speak into our moment it's a good play to find again um so if uh, I think we're we're about to the end of our time but this is the the encouragement from me at least for you all to read this play um read this play and produce this play find ways to say the words of this play because it's a it's a it's a great one it's certainly still a relevant one and when you do and if you're looking for ways to talk 
about it with people. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or find anyone from the NoScript community on those places, and let's have a conversation about this play. We'd love to keep talking about this play, The Piano Lesson, with you. You can find us on all those social media sites at the username at Podcast. We also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on any of those sites. We'd love to be talking about this play more with all of you out there. Absolutely. I I just had the occasion to answer a couple of messages with a new listener who expressed how delighted he was to find the podcast, which is, you know, very nice. But what was even more encouraging was that he said, I am I've been looking for people to talk about plays with. And it's been so great to find the podcast because it's a way of having discussions about plays. And I encourage you in the message, shoot us a message if you want to talk further about something that we said that was wrong or right (laughs) Right. or missed or left behind or something that you bring in terms of your own insight. These discussions we love to do, obviously. That's why we're midway through season five of this thing. We We love to have discussions about plays. Theater is so powerful. And you all can continue those discussions amongst yourselves or with us with any of the ways Jackson just mentioned. Email, social media, we want to talk with you. So please, please, please do that. The other thing you could do is tell other people about the podcast because discussing with other people uh, in person, although that's a little bit complicated in our world right now, is is even better than just discussing with us over email. So uh, recommend the podcast to your friends, your family, anybody you know that likes scripts or literature. You can send them to Podbean, to Spotify, to Google Podcasts, to uh, Apple Podcasts, I think it's called. I'm, I'm, I'm out of my groove a little bit, so I didn't say those in the, in the same order for my muscle memory to produce. <laughs> it on the spot. Right, right. Um, any of those places is where we are. They can find the podcast there. They can subscribe through all those ways and get updates. But an easy way to find the new episodes, as well as advertisements for what episode is coming up, is just to be subscribed to us on social media. On Facebook, we are able to put a link to the new episode every Monday, so you can find that there. Great, easy way to find the podcast and for you to direct other people to find the podcast, too. And we have our uh, kind of soft announcement this week. Um, it's for exciting. Those, yeah. For those of you who are longtime listeners of the show, you know we try to do a themed month every season. And this season is no different. We will be doing our themed month in, boy, is it just like three weeks away? I think it's so. just a couple of weeks away. It'll be October this season. We'll do uh, plays that surround a central theme for October. And this season, season five, our themed month, we are calling Monologue Month. And this is, it's a little bit of a confusing title for the month, we appreciate, uh, but it did have an M in it, so we went with it. This is not a month of plays with great monologues, although that would be fun to do someday. You could do Uh Hamlet, uh you could do, well, I won't won't spoil We might do that someday. (laughs) We might do that someday. This Monologue Month is uh, a month of one-person shows. Yeah, yeah. So we'll be doing plays that are uh, written and and uh, made for one actor to portray most of the time, probably many characters. Um, but uh, and and then the the ongoing. <laughs> really soliloquies, um, but monologues. They're monologues. Um, that they... <laughs> All right, they're not monologues. I know. We know. But it had an M. So we went. It had an M. They're, it's, and we're they're not monologues. They're whole shows 
We know, but we went with it anyway, okay? <laughs> We're rolling with it. So get ready for Monologue Month, which is coming up just in a few short weeks. Um, we'll be posting about it as, it as it comes up closer as well. So get excited for that. Until then, I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you for listening to No Script, the podcast. Goodbye. Oh, I got to think of something to say right away. Okay. Ooh, that's going to be rough. We got to think of an hour of something to say, Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) That is the whole podcast. (laughs) Thinking of things to say. It's unscripted, remember?